there you are, you see. Not switched on. So not wired for sound at the moment. Is that better? Well, it's on. Is that better? I thought this thing worked. Oh, well, never mind. Um, is that better? You can hear me. Excellent. Well, I hope it's excellent. It is a fact that uh, being wired for sound is not, uh, not great. I'm at the stage now in my life where I have to have a hearing aid. So I've got wires here, and I've got wires on top of me. I've got this in front of me. So by and large, I am well and truly wired for sound this morning. And I've also got a zapper, which I hope I shall be able to work uh, when we uh, start showing some of the um, slides that I've, I've prepared. Well, we are, as already been said, uh, going through a series uh, called uh, Our Incomparable, Incomparable God, Our Inca Incomparable Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the subject this morning, which again has already been mentioned, is God is spirit. God is spirit. But I've given it a, a little bit of a subtitle as well, which is God is spirit, the living water. The living water. And central around that is the conversation that Jesus was having with this, this lady. We know that in Jesus' time, um, relationships between the Jews and the Samaritans uh, were pretty poor, pretty poor. And it all emanated from a split uh, that came in the nation of Israel during the time of R King Rehoboam, who was the son of uh, King Solomon. When ten, ten of the twelve tribes of Israel formed the northern kingdom that became known in due course uh, as Samaria, with the southern kingdom made up of uh, Judah and Benjamin. Both of these kingdoms became quite apostate. And they wandered really quite far away from God. The animosity, the animosity between Jew and Samaritan festered and it really became quite severe. So this encounter that Jesus had with this Samaritan lady was really typical of that atmosphere of distrust uh, that they had at the time. That woman uh, would speak to Jesus initially in the way that she did. Can we switch it on? You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? You know, one of the wonderful characteristics of our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he displayed time and time again was the compassion he had, the compassion he had towards outcasts of society. Of people that at large would really uh, avoid, if they could possibly, even scorn and, and revile. Where in Jesus' own case, his critics would say, uh, really, and they were predominantly the, the Jewish leaders, they would say, he was a friend. You are a Jew. We'll get there one of these days. 
you're a friend. You're a friend of uh, sinners and tax collectors. You know, tax collectors in those days were particularly disliked as they not only collaborated with their Jewish masters, with the rulers at the time, but they also made sure they might uh, line their own pockets with the uh, taxes that were paid to their own fellow citizens. That's amazing, isn't it? So to be accused, accused of being a friend of tax collectors, was no insignificant uh, accusation. But as for this encounter that Jesus had uh, with this lady, it became clear that she herself had had uh, a pretty checkered life, hadn't she? A promiscuous life that had involved her with five women, uh, five men, including five husbands, as it's described. And as the conversation proceeds, it becomes very apparent that she seems to, she seems to have had a good knowledge of the history of both uh, the Jews and also the Samaritans, the Orthodox Jews and the Samaritans. Just consider that for a moment. Around the year 700 BC, the Northern Kingdom fell to the Assyrians. Many people were taken off captive to Assyria. And those that remained, they intermarried uh, with the foreigners, with the pagans that were in fact planted there by the Assyrians. These half-Jewish, half-Gentile people became known as the Samaritans. In 586 BC, the southern kingdom, Judah, fell to the Babylonian Empire. The walls of Jerusalem were breached and they were torn down and the temple itself was destroyed. Samaritans are first mentioned in the Bible as distinct, distinct from the Jews in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the 5th century BC. You may recall that Nehemiah, he carried favour with the king of Persia, Artaxerxes at the time, who allowed him to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city walls. However, the Samaritans that had remained in the land, they opposed these rebuilding efforts and caused all sorts of problems for Nehemiah and his fellow builders, using all sorts of nefarious means to stop him from do it, doing it. You can read all about it in Nehemiah chapter 6. In many respects, this was really the beginning of the long-lasting hatred between Jews and Samaritans. So the, the positive image that Jesus gave of the Samaritans, um, like the par parable of the Good Samaritan, would be quite a revelation, even a, even a shock for the people at the time. I wonder if there's a challenge there for us, that empathy towards outcasts of society. But back to this encounter, this particular encounter uh, with this lady and Jesus, where the distress, the, the distrust between Jews and Samaritans is epitomised, isn't it, in her opening remarks. As the conversation develops, it seems that the lady felt Jesus was talking in riddles. He seemed to be some sort of prophet. And what's this living water 
this living water that he's talking about. Sounds great. Save me a lot of time, she thought. But the living water she was, he was talking about was a metaphor for the new life, the new life that wells up in a person who comes in faith uh, to our Lord. We'll never, we'll never thirst again. You know, as I've grown older, I've come to realise that so many people, so many people are emotionally, psychologically, spiritually thirsty. You know, they may mask it with lives full of diversions, work, entertainment, hobbies, even family, all great uh, worthwhile uh, responsibilities and activities in themselves. But deep within, deep within, perhaps in those reflective moments that come upon us from time to time, often with a jolt, there's something missing. missing. I read a, a very perceptive comment made by a Swiss Christian psychiatrist, Dr. Paul Tournier. He said this, let us be the first to discover what modern man is seeking. He is thirsting for God. Everybody today is searching for an answer to those problems to which uh, science pays no attention. The problem of their destiny. The mystery of evil. The question of death. Very true, very true. I was a great fan of Tommy Cooper. Tommy Cooper, the, mommy, the comic magician. You know, he used to come out with some really great one-liners. This is one of them. I got stopped last night by a policeman. He says, I'd like to follow you to the nearest police station. What for, I said. I've forgotten the way, he said. <laughs> you know, that could be a commentary, couldn't it? On many people's lives. They've forgotten the way. The problem of their destiny. What did Jesus say? I, I am the way. The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You might have heard of, the, uh, of Anthony Flew. He was a professor of philosophy at Keele University. And he held positions at uh, the universities of Oxford and, and Aberdeen and, and Reading. He died in 2010 at the age of 87. He was a, a very prominent atheist. Uh, but after following his presuppositions, he ended up with a convinced belief in the creator God. Originally, in his atheistic days, uh, among the numerous books that he wrote, he wrote one entitled, There Is No God. But as he followed through his arguments, he changed his mind. He changed his mind and followed that up with another book entitled, There Is A, go a God. The book's subtitle is How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. It was first published in 2007, and I'm sure you can still get uh, a copy of it. As you can imagine, it caused quite a stir in the academic world. Flu had that thirst for real meaning to life. And it wasn't until he encountered God that that thirst, that spiritual, th spiritual thirst, was satisfied. 
I used to sing a song in chorus, <coughs> a, a, a chorus in Sunday school, um, and I suspect maybe one or two of you of my sort of age um, might recognise it themselves. It had a refrain that went like this. I'm feeding on the living bread, I'm drinking at the fountainhead, and whoso drinketh, Jesus said, will never thirst again. Anybody remember that? Oh, yes? Sir, I'm not going to say people of my age. I, that would be a bit rude, wouldn't it? Um, the chorus rounds off with uh, the repeated question and answer. What, never thirst again? No, never thirst again. And we used to sing it in parts in Sunday school, perhaps you did as well, where uh, one uh, part of the, uh, of the group would sing, what, never thirst again? And the others would sing, no, never thirst again. And most of us wanted to sing the second part because we used to sing the no. Well, we didn't sing it. We used to shout it. No, never thirst again. Never thirst again. Great sport. Great sport. But great for hammering home the message. Let me ask you a question. Have you personally experience that living water welling up in your life with the enduring outcome, the enduring outcome that you'll never thirst again. You know, of course, Christians, God's children, don't live in a constant flow of mountaintop experiences, do we? Most of the time, our Christian journey is quite ordinary, commonplace, but quite extraordinary with the knowledge with the experience of his spirit motivating and guiding our lives. That well of water, that well of water continually in our lives. I read this comment the other day about the incredible mountaintop experience that the disciples, Peter, James and John had. The disciples uh, saw Jesus' clothes transformed into dazzling white and with him were Moses and Elijah. The disciples uh, wanted to prolong the experience, build shelters, but that wasn't to be. The commentator I read said this. <coughs> I've got the next one, actually. I'm sure we can all think of precious moments of worship which we would have loved to have prolonged. Perhaps we were in a great cathedral or at a Christian festival or we may have been on holiday in a beautiful place and God seemed incredibly close to us. We were sad when we needed to move on but that's precisely what we had to do. It was just so for Jesus and the disciples. They had had their mountaintop experience and now they needed to return to the cut and thrust of everyday life. I wonder if we can pause for a moment and just ponder on that. Jesus goes on and he makes another quite searching comment to the lady. Uh, John 4 and verse 23, the time is coming and in fact has now come when you will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
And then verse 24, God is spirit. Ah, there we are. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Verse 24. You know, over the years, there's been uh, uh, much debate as to whether Jesus was referring to the Holy Spirit uh, when he used the phrase in spirit and in truth. You notice that in our NIV Bibles, um, and on the screen there, spirit is, is spelt with a, a small s. Most translations seem to follow that convention. So it follows that what Jesus is saying is that our worship of God must not only be honest and genuine, truthful, but must also come from and, and be motivated from deep within, from our own spirits, heartfelt worship. You know how easy it is for our worship to be almost mechanical, switched, switched on and off, routine, almost spiritless. You know, it's a constant danger. But there's also a sense in which our worship is enlivened by the Holy Spirit working in our lives. You know, I'd like to think that we can take both aspects, our spirits responding to God's spirit. You know, we must be so open to God's spirit working in our lives that our own spirits are quickened. They're energized, they're enlivened, so that our worship and service for him will truly be sincere and genuine. I like the way some of the other translations or paraphrased Bibles uh, put it. God is spirit, and only by the power of his spirit uh, can we worship him as he really is. And how about J.B. Phillips? God is spirit, and those who worship him can only worship in spirit and in reality. You know, there should be this well of worship within us that should never cease. Worship that shows itself in our everyday lives, in the way we conduct ourselves, in the way we speak, the way we, the way we think, the way we act. I'm sure we've all heard of the fairly uh, dismissive quote that he or she is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Have you heard of that? Well, I don't like that quote. In fact, I, I disagree with it. You know, it's the Holy Spirit who awakens in us an appreciation of God's beauty, an appreciation of his wonder, an appreciation of his power, uh, and all that he's done, his grace, his love towards us. You know, it's the Holy Spirit that ignites in our own spirits, ignites it into worship and praise and service for our Lord. You know, if we're genuinely heavenly minded, if God's Spirit is anchored firmly in our spirits, then surely we would truly be a power for good. To quote C.S. Lewis, hopefully, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Let me read that to you again. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most about the next. As Paul 
uh, told Titus after encouraging him to uh, teach the need to live good, godly lives. He says this, I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Have the emphasis there, to devote, to devote themselves to doing what is good. One aspect that we haven't looked at is the opening words of our Lord. A time is coming and has now come. You know, I find that comment of Jesus a very strong and compelling comment. It encompasses urgency, immediacy and force. I wonder if you've ever wondered what a privileged time we're living in. The presence of our Lord is with us all the time. Just consider that for a moment. The presence of the Lord is with us all the time. The understanding that God is spirit is also important. For as someone once wrote, God the Father is not limited uh, to the dimensional restrictions of created things, but can exist in all places at one time. Isn't that marvellous? Absolutely marvellous. You know, it's a concept that our finite minds find difficult, really, to understand and comprehend. To me, in my own simple mind, it means God, my Heavenly Father, is always there. He's always there. There's no time, no occasion when my Lord is absent. You know, I, I may feel he is distant from me from time to time, but that's more to do with my own state of mind. Whereas in reality, the Lord is close by. To use Jesus' own familiar words, I am with you always. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, I find such thoughts both very comforting, but also very challenging. That my life, my behaviour, my spirit, should, should be fully in the control of my Lord. In the control of his spirit within. So that I do truly worship him in spirit and in truth. In every every part of my life. When that Samaritan's lady's conversation with Jesus ended, what did she do? Well, she went off and she told others. She told others about her encounter with Jesus. Now, that's a challenge in itself, isn't it? That's a challenge in itself. Leslie Newbegin, one-time missionary in India, a theologian who was not particularly from an evangelical tradition, wrote a very powerful book entitled Truth to Tell with a subtitle, The Gospel as Public Truth. The aim of the book was to encourage churches and, and individual Christians like you and me to take the gospel to the outside world, to connect and relate to people who in the main are outside of the church and outside of the Christian faith. And further, people who perhaps have no particular interest in hearing the gospel. Let me quote from his book. We do not have all the truth, but we know the way along which truth is to be sought and found. We have to call all people to come this way with us. 
For we shall not know the full glory of Jesus until the day when every tongue shall confess him. And we do not know the fullness of what the service of Jesus means until we have struggled to bring all the manifold works of learning and industry and politics and the arts into obedience to him. So mission is not a one-way promotion, but a two-way encounter in which we learn more about the gospel means. We are learning as we go. So that the only, that is the only way to affirm that the gospel is not just true for us, but true for all. The missionary action of the church is the exegesis of the gospel. Or to put it another way, all of us, the church and individual Christians of faith, have the unequivocal responsibility under our Lord to proclaim and explain the good news about Jesus and his redemptive act by both word, written and spoken, and by deed, to proclaim it in spirit and in truth. You know, such proclamation won't always receive a good reception. We, we should be prepared for that. In his Ephesian letter, Paul uses the metaphor of the church uh, as the body of Christ, that is, the body of believers. I read a comment about this, and, and I quote, Christians are assured, Christians are assured that God has given the church a sovereign who is head over all things. The church has authority to confront the powers which oppose God because her head is the Lord of all. The prophet Jeremiah, he's not known for his tact, is he? He tends to say things uh, as they are. There's a very sobering accusation in his book where he bemoans the way the children of Israel, God's people, have forsaken and abandoned their Lord. He says this, using the picture of, of water again. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Billy Graham's son, Franklin Graham, uh, he quotes this verse as a commentary on American society. Now, it seems to me it could well be appropriate for society in the, in the UK as well. Now, at the risk of being misunderstood, and perhaps you might criticise me afterwards, sadly it seems to me that elements within the established church quite large and influential elements in, in, in nearly all denominations, rather than confronting the powers that oppose God, so often acquiesce, even at times seem to align themselves with such powers. Perhaps I'm being overly cynical when I say that. To quote Leslie Newbegin again, we have to call all people to come this way with us. For we shall not know the full glory of Jesus until the day when every tongue shall confess him. As we sang a few moments ago, echoing Paul's words in Philippians, God exalted him, God exalted Jesus to the highest place, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in, an, on, in, on heaven, in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
our incomparable Heavenly Father, our incomparable Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and this story of the encounter Jesus had with the Samaritan lady. Thank you for the reminder that your love extends to all people. Help us through your spirit to follow that example. Forgive us for those times when we fail. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. May that spring of living water always be experienced and evidenced in our lives to the glory of your dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.